Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. If you would, take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter of the Bibles that's in your pews. It'll be 1,021. In a few minutes, we'll be... Uh, we'll begin our study there. We won't have slides tonight, so you might want to be sure and open your Bible up. The Bible in your pew there, 1,021, will be the page that we'll begin on in just a few minutes. Uh, we are thankful for Trey, and we're thankful for the good that he was a part of here and uh, the good that he accomplished. And we love Trey and Elizabeth and their family. Let's continue to pray for them in this time of transition and also pray for uh, our church family in this time of transition. God's work is a wonderful work, and we want to make sure uh, that we are reminded that it is God's work, and we want to lean wholeheartedly upon Him in prayer, and uh, as we look to another hire in the future, uh, we would want to find the man that God would want us to have. And, um, you know, we've just sung a beautiful song, several beautiful songs, but the last one that we sung about God's family The family that matters now and into eternity. And a characteristic of that family, of course, is love. And today, uh, we begin this morning by looking at the importance of love. How important is love? That was the simple question we asked. And you remember we looked at 1 John 4 and 8, and we found out that if we didn't know love, we wouldn't know God. God is love. We went to Matthew 22 and found out that the first and second greatest commandments are about love, love God and love others. But Jesus then raised the bar in John the 13th chapter to not simply say love others, but to say love others as I have loved you. And that was between a life of, of, of service, of servanthood, and a life of sacrifice, giving himself upon the cross and then we went to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, which you're open to right now. And we looked at the very last verse. And, and Paul names off some very important things like faith, hope, and love. But then has no hesitation to say the greatest of these is love. We looked in Galatians, the 5th chapter, the fruit of the Spirit. And the very first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit that's listed is love. And it's from love that all the other ones flow. And then we went to Colossians, the third chapter, and we saw that in Colossians, the third chapter, we saw that there were things that we were to take off, and, and all of those things would be things that we wouldn't practice if, if, if we loved. And so there were things that we should practice, and, and it's things like tender mercy and, and kindness and, and forbearing and, and forgiving one another. But then he says, above all of these things, add love. And, and so we, we saw at the close of this morning's lesson, Paul's prayer for the church. And the very first thing that he prays for the church at Philippi is that their love would abound. In other words, this is something that we continually, and notice this, uh, I'm selecting this word on purpose because it's very descriptive of the very first thing we're going to mention in a moment as we finish this review. It is something, as he says, I want your love to abound. It is what we are to continually do. This love is something that, that it is an action for us. It is what we do, and it's continually. We, we abound in this over and over. We, I mentioned to you this morning the, the, the analogy or the illustration of an ocean. Would your love be like an ocean that just continually flows in moment after moment, 24 hours a day, 
And, and that's what our love is to be, is this continually abounding. And then he even says, still more and more. Do you love God more this year than you did last year? Do you do a better job of fulfilling the second greatest commandment this year than you did last year? Will you be even greater in your level of maturity of love by the end of this year than what you are now? This is how important? The most important challenge of our life. Love God and love others as Christ has loved us and as we love ourselves. So now this brings us to a very important point, a part of this lesson. What is love? To illustrate this, I would like for you to do something that will probably be real easy for you to do. I'd like for you to imagine that you are a Martian and you just landed here on earth, and not only on earth, right here in the U.S., and you want to learn the the customs and the language of of English and of Americans, and, and so you are just going to kind of follow people around for a few days and you want to learn the language and so you start hearing this word love that apparently is important because it's talked about a lot and so you just kind of pop in on a 50th wedding anniversary and you just kind of stand in the background behind the couple sitting together there on the couch and people are coming by and they're greeting them and and finally somebody says hey you guys have had the best marriage you you just have have always made the most of things and had a strong relationship whether it was in the valleys or if it's the mountaintop whether the sun was shining or, or it was a storm in your life. It seemed to, no matter what, you guys just seemed to always do well. How did you make it and how did you do that? And they look at each other and said, we just loved each other through it all. So as a Martian, you're like, wow, that's a powerful concept. Whatever this love is, it's powerful when it keeps a couple together through everything for 50 years. And so as you're leaving there, you stop to get some gas. And as you're walking in the convenience store, you hear two guys coming out of a, uh, they've been on, on a job site and they're coming out of the convenience store on a break. And one of them takes a big bite of a Snickers and says, I love Snickers. And now that doesn't compute. You're trying to figure out that. I thought I understood what love is, but now, now it's something about chocolate and caramel and nuts and 50th wedding anniversaries. I don't know. So you just abandon your car, forget that, and you start walking down the sidewalk. And as you're walking down the sidewalk, it's the first day of school. School is over, and and you find yourself behind two high school girls. And, And the one high school girl turns to the other to describe the new kid that was in her class this year, and, and she describes him as, oh, he is so good looking. Oh, oh, you just went, and she describes it. And then the other girl says, did you talk to him? She says, oh, no, no. I couldn't get the courage to say anything, but oh, I love him. Now as a Martian, how are you feeling about love? You, you, you've got this concept that it's what keeps you together 50 years. It's what you feel towards a Snickers candy bar, and it's what you feel towards someone that you've never spoken to before. Now, do you see why we have such a serious problem with love in America? In our English language, we have used the word love in such a broad sense that in a sense, it has no meaning anymore. And so then we have a lesson like this morning where we say the highest concept that we can achieve is to love, okay, what, do you, what are you talking about? Are you talking about attraction? Are you talking about desire? Are you talking about commitment? If, if the highest 
requirement for us is to love God and, and to love our neighbor. Is it, is it like that guy that loves a candy bar? I, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, the word that I'm sure you've heard many times, the highest level of love is agape. Agape is mentioned over 250 times in the New Testament. Every passage you and I read this morning, it was agape. In 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the great love chapter in the Bible, it's agape. And agape is a decision. It's not that emotion. It's not that desire. Agape is a decision that we're going to do what is right and best toward another or toward the other person. Now notice how, how that's very different from another Greek word that's philio. And, and it is much more emotional. And it is a warmth. It, you know, when you meet someone, and, and it may be the first time you met them and, and visited with them for just a few minutes, and you may walk away from them saying, I like that person. I, I want to spend some more time with them. That is filial. That is that warmth. If, if I were to say to you right now, hey, name three of your, your best friends. You would name individuals that you have that warmth for them. You enjoy spending time with them. But what's the challenge about that? The challenge is that we too often as Americans, and, I, and I'm sure it's part of, of not just our culture, it's a human race. And that is, we tend to make, if we're not careful, we build our relationships on filio. And notice how dangerous that is. Because it comes and goes. For example, the first time that newborn was placed in your arms... You probably thought to yourself, I'll never put this baby down. I'll hold this, I'll, 24 hours a day, I'll love this baby. It's philios, high gear. There's another Greek word for storge, that's a blood relationship. It's in high gear too. All of that is just so, oh, it's wonderful. And then, and then about four weeks later, when you're getting up at three o'clock in the morning for the eighth time, there's not any philio there. None. None. As a matter of fact, domestic violence takes place whenever people decide to act solely on whether or not filio is there or it's not. And, and so, what was the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment was have a warmth for God. No, that wasn't the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is have agape for God. Love, agape God. What was the second greatest commandment? Have a warmth for everybody else? No. It wasn't have a warmth. You do what's right and best toward everybody else. And so we understand with children that, that whenever an individual stops dealing with their child with agape, they oftentimes become abusive. And, and, and we understand, even in our relationship with God, people, if we're not careful, and this is toward God, and this is toward our friends... If, if I use this expression, you know exactly what I mean. Fair-weather friend. Who's a fair-weather friend? It's somebody that whenever they're moving, they expect you to be there and help them move. And whenever you're moving, they probably won't be there. You know why? They just didn't happen to feel warm and fuzzy about you that day. And so, what, what's happening here? What's happening is, a fair-weather friend bases their relationship on emotion and how they're feeling. And, and then on the other hand, if, I, if we say, who is that friend that you can always count on? The friend you can always count on is someone who practices agape. 
They knew what's right and best towards you. So now notice here, in just these illustrations of defining these words, notice what we have. With agape, we have a decision. It is a commitment. I'm going to do what's right and best. And remember, remember Jesus this morning? It's, it's servanthood, it's sacrificial, and it's unconditional. It doesn't matter what the other person has just done. We are going to do what's right and best. In other words, now we have a standard that's higher than our emotions. Emotionally, we might want to strike back at somebody. Emotionally, we might want to put someone in their place. But the standard is agape, and so we say, instead, I'm going to see with God what is right and best. And see, this goes back to Paul's prayer in Philippians 1 that we read at the very end of the lesson this morning where our love abounds more and more still in knowledge. In other words, now I'm going to go back to the knowledge of God's Word and I'm going to make a discernment, I'm going to make a decision about how I should treat you because I know it must be with love. Friends, that's huge. So when we look in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, it's agape. You see there beginning at verse... Notice that he says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. This is agape. Does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity. Rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. Did you know in the original language, every one of those are verbs? It's saying what agape does. Every one of them are verbs. In other words, because of that, you and I can put our name in the place of love there, and it ought to describe us. For example, you know, I'll I'll use my name, you use your name, but like in four, can you say, David suffers long and is kind. Now, you remember... Earlier this morning, we studied Jesus' teachings in John, the 13th chapter, that when we agape others as He has agaped us, all men will know that you are His disciples. You know why all men will know you are His disciples? Because nobody consistently does even that very first thing we've just read unless they're a disciple of Jesus. What suffer long mean? Somebody's mistreated you, and instead of retaliating against them, You don't seek vengeance against them. Romans, the 12th chapter, you let God, and if it's a dishonest or a criminal act, you let the government do it. Uh, Romans, the 13th chapter. And and so uh, we're not going to do that. And so now, just the fact that we didn't retaliate, a lot of people would say, that's amazing. Oh, no, he didn't stop there, did he? Do you notice that conjunction, and? We suffer long, and what? And is kind. Now try that one on. As a Christian, imagine, imagine your, your spouse, your, your child, your co-worker, your parent, your neighbor. The next time they do something that really hurts you, imagine instead of striking back in any way, having an attitude that says, I'm not going to strike back at all. I'm going to let God take care of punishing them. But now I know what God requires of me. God requires me to agape them, and so agape is action, so now I can't just sit back passively and not do anything. I have to do something, and what God commands me to do is be kind. So I guess I'll run to Dairy Queen and get a blizzard and their favorite flavor and bring it back for them. When's the last time you've done that? 
That's literally what he's talking about is suffer long and then find something kind to do in place of it. Can you imagine how our relationships would change if we could truly... We're talking about growth. We're talking about maturity. We're talking about the fact that none of us have arrived. We all have room to grow. Can you imagine how our lives will change? Because I believe most of us here are growing. I, I think our Sunday night crowd is a crowd that says, I'm serious about my Christianity. I'm going to grow. Think how different your life is going to be by the end of this year when you say, I'm going throughout this, this life agape I'm going to... I'm going to do what's right and best towards others. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to sacrifice for them. And, and I'm going to do it unconditionally. It doesn't matter what they have just done. It's what God wants me to do, period. It's not based upon a reaction. It's, it, is, it is a decision to, to act, period, toward an individual. And, and so as, as we look at these, can you put your name in each one of those? Can, can you say... David does not envy. David does not pray to himself. He's not puffed up. Can you put your name in each one of those? Now, would somebody that knows you, could they put your name in each one of those? Or if they really knew you well, would they be able to say, I, I, can't, I can't see these characteristics in their life. One of the greatest compliments that we could ever receive is for someone knowing us well saying, when I read this passage, I think of you. That's what children of God are supposed to be. Listen to me, brethren. This isn't back shelf stuff. This isn't, oh, maybe by the way, if you get all the other stuff right, you might want to work on this. Remember, the, remember all the passages we read this morning? This is the first place God wants us to begin. Do you have this? It's the first. Do you have this? It is the greatest. These are the most important things that we must grasp. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew, the fifth chapter. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, we get another reminder of how it is to be unconditional. It doesn't matter what others have done. And I realize we're, we're studying some hard things. Um, keep in mind, God has never had a problem asking us to do hard things. He asks us to do what's right and best for us because he loves us. Did you catch that? He loves us. He agapes us. He will ask us to do what's right and best, but he doesn't mind it if what's right and best is difficult, if it's hard. And so notice, notice what he does here in the Sermon on the Mount. We're toward the end of the fifth chapter. And look in verse 43. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, do you realize that Jesus was obviously speaking to a tradition they really had that tradition in their day and time. The Jews really believed that only other Jews were their neighbors. And so they would love their neighbors. And if someone was a Gentile, they had a right to hate them. And so they didn't know any agape towards them. They didn't know any kindness. They didn't know any servanthood or sacrifice toward a Gentile. Now, you know, if, if we were in an hour-long Bible class and we could slow down and flip back and forth, I would ask you then to flip over to Luke, the 10th chapter. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Do you remember what provoked that story? Jesus had just talked about the first and second greatest commandment. And so the last few words were, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And so the man then asked the question, 
And it says, he was justifying himself. He asked the question, who is my neighbor? Do you see, literally, this was the same thing being referred to as what Jesus was referring to here in Matthew 5. In other words, Jesus had just told him to love his neighbor. He wanted to make sure that he was justified in the sight of God. And so, in other words, he's saying... Okay, tell me who my neighbor is as if I already know who my neighbor is. My neighbor's all the Jews and my neighbor's not the Gentiles. Listen, the Good Samaritan story, it's one of our favorite parables. I assure you that it would have blown the minds of the Jews. They would have never seen that story coming. They probably really expected Jesus to say, well, your neighbor is good, faithful Jews. Love them. Be good to them. But instead, do you remember the story? It was the, quote, good faithful Jew that walked by on the other side, the priest. It was the good faithful Jew, the Levite, that walked by on the other side. Who's going to stop and help this man? And of all individuals that were Gentiles, in the minds of the Jew, it was the worst Gentile, a Samaritan. And what did he do? Now think about this morning's lesson about love. Think about servanthood. Think about unconditional sacrifice. He takes his oil and his wine and, and, and he pours into the wounds and he bounds up his, his wounds. He takes his ride and puts the man on his ride and he walks leading the animal along. He takes his hours that he could have been sleeping and he cares for the man in an inn. And then the next morning he takes his money and pays for the innkeeper to take care of the man and whatever the needs he had. And now, keep in mind, why is this story being told? Because the man asked, who is my neighbor? And then at the end of that, Jesus says, now you tell me, which one was neighbor? And the man had to say, the one who showed compassion. Friends, Agape. It changes lives drastically. Here is an individual now, or a group of people. Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount back to Matthew, the fifth chapter. And they've heard in 43, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he says, but I say to you, agape your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good, see the verbs? Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love, there it is, agape, if you love those who love you, What reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. What's the teaching here? Here are people that are enemies. What, What does God want us to do? Bless them. Do good to them. Pray for them. Oh, so Jesus says, you thought it was enough just to do good for those who do good to you? To greet only your brethren? 
He says, now what makes you different than a tax collector? And there couldn't have been a much lower blow that Jesus would have given a Jew at that time in that way. What makes you different from a tax collector? Tonight, did you only greet people that you knew when you walked in? Or did you practice servanthood and sacrifice and greet others that you didn't know? Agape. Agape will move us to do what is right and best in order to obey loving God and loving others. Look, if you will, to Romans, the 13th chapter. Somebody says, I just find it hard to believe that I owe that to my enemies. I find that hard to believe that I owe that to everybody. And Romans, the 13th chapter, he makes it very clear. 13th, Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You know, I'm a slow learner. And for a long time, I thought that meant that if, if, if you have loved one another, there is one law that you have fulfilled. You remember the teaching this morning? Loving God is the first grace commandment. The second is love thy neighbor. And remember, under these hangs all the other laws and prophets. And so what's the teaching here? If we can fulfill that love, we will have fulfilled the whole law. This keeps us on the right track. And so he begins here by saying, we owe it to each other. And see, now we're back to servanthood. You know, the reality is there's a lot of people we don't do good for them because we don't think we owe it to them. And now the Lord says, no, you owe everyone agape. Everyone. And so are you going to pay your debt? You owe it. And so notice here in in the very next verse, in verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that amazing? He lists these things. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't covet. Don't bear false witness. He lists these things and says, by the way, all of these are covered under one statement. Love your neighbor. And then he summarizes it. And this is why we went to this, this passage. Look at verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love never harms. That's why the passage that we just left in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, in verse 8, where it says, love never fails. Think about that. Filio, the emotion, it fails all the time. It comes and it goes. But agape is to be consistent. There's no such thing as, as a broken relationship between a parent and a child unless at least one of them have stopped agapeing. There's no such thing as a divorce unless at least one within the couple has stopped agapeing. 
There's no such thing as domestic violence. There's no such thing as, as, as neighbors that, that just hate each other. There's, there's no such thing as those kind of relationships unless at least one has stopped agape. Love never fails. There's no such thing as someone saying, well, I tell you what, I started agapeing in my relationships and I really, I messed up every relationship. It doesn't work that way. Agape doesn't let you down. Agape doesn't fail. Now, too often times we fail in practicing agape, but agape doesn't fail. And so let's close with this thought. When Jesus was going to the cross... Matthew, the 26th chapter, we have in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's looking towards the cross, and apparently there was a great bit of dread. As he said, as he prayed, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Then, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so we see that he did not have a warm emotional feeling saying, I want to go to that cross. And so when we look at the cross, obviously, we're... I think most of us are very comfortable describing the cross as the greatest demonstration of love that we've ever seen. So here's the greatest demonstration of love that we've ever seen, but yet it was agape. Christ was doing this because it was right and best toward obedience of his father and because it was right and best for mankind. It wasn't tied to a warm emotional feeling that he wanted to do it. I've been told this at least two or three times, if not more, in ministry. Someone will, it'll go like this. You know, I, I just wasn't there Sunday. Let me, let me tell you why I wasn't there Sunday. The, the alarm went off and, and I turned it off and, and I went to bed really late Saturday night. And I just thought, the last thing I want to do right now is get up and go to worship. And then I thought to myself, if I don't want to be at worship, I know God wouldn't want me to be at worship. So I'm thankful I skipped Sunday morning because I know God wouldn't have been happy with that. I've been told that several times. Now let's walk through this for just a moment. What is loving God? Well, Hebrews 10 and 25, he tells us not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. John 14 and 15, if you love me, agape, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so what is agape? You know, the mornings you and I want to get up and come to worship, I would think that God is so pleased with that. But you know, when we probably prove our love the most is the mornings that we don't want to come to worship, but we have that love that brings us, that commitment that says, God, I've made a commitment to you to do what's right and best, And I will be in worship this morning. That's real love. And that's agape. And I'd like for you to walk with me just a moment back the other way. If we fall for Satan's lies that we should only do the things as we feel like doing them, ultimately, we have become our own God. Well, the only time I'm going to go to worship is when I feel like I ought to go to worship. Well, now we're back to us being the standard and our desires being the standard. And so now we've become our God. How do marriages last 50 years? It's not because they've always done exactly what they felt like doing. 
It's because they've done what was right and best over and over and over. And you know what that does? That creates an environment where filio is often healthy. And there's a lot of warm emotional feelings. But even then, that's what's enjoyed, not what is the standard. Tonight, I want to challenge all of us. Love God. In other words, do what is right and best toward God, no matter what. I've already mentioned this to you once, and I'd like to close by reminding you of this. God has never had any problems asking us to do big things and sacrifice much. He apparently didn't have a problem going to Noah and asking him to build a boat that would take a hundred years to build. And by the time it was built, only he and his family would be the only righteous individuals on the earth. He didn't have a problem going to Abraham and asking him to offer upon an altar his son that he waited a hundred till he was a hundred years old for the son to even be born. He didn't have a problem asking his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth and to die on a cross, a horrific death of crucifixion. He didn't have a problem asking 12 apostles to live for him, no matter what it cost. And, and secular history says 11 out of the 12 died as martyrs. And the one that didn't, he was on the island as punishment, stranded from civilization. By the time we come to the book of Revelation, it's believed that tens upon thousands of Christians were dying simply because they would not deny their faith in Jesus Christ. What's the point? The point is, God has always been willing to ask great things and tremendous sacrifice of His people, but His people will never do it unless they understand what agape is. It's not about a feeling it's about a commitment that says, Lord, I will give you my all no matter what it takes. Be thou faithful until death and I will give thee a crown of righteousness. Tonight, I beg you to look deep inside your heart and ask yourself, are you ready right now to die for Jesus Christ? He doesn't want anything less. Do you love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. When we get that love right, it's going to change our relationship with others because we're going to learn to practice that same love toward others. Tonight, let's remember what's most important. And let's remember the challenge that it is. And let's wake up every day with a prayer that we will love God and others as He has taught us. If we can help you take any steps closer to God, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ, or if you need to come and confess sin and pray forgiveness, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as we sing.